0: is Genesis 3, the verses 8 through 15. After the sermon, we will respond by singing Psalm 118, stanzas 1 and 4. So our text, Genesis 3, beginning at verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Last time we saw how our first parents broke covenant with the Lord. It was not a pretty scene. With full understanding and a wholehearted willingness, Eve and then Adam chose to believe the word of the devil over against the word of the Lord. They chose to break covenant with God and establish covenant with Satan. Adam and Eve sold their souls to the devil for the illusion that they could be as wise as God. And our text today describes the aftermath of that diabolical decision. What sort of consequences will there be from breaking God's covenant? What could man expect? I proclaim to you this word of God. The Lord renews the broken covenant. We see total depravity, total grace, and total victory. The Lord renews the broken covenant. We see total depravity. The devil had promised Adam and Eve that upon eating the fruit, their eyes would be opened and they would be like God, knowing good and evil. They were in for a rude awakening. We finished with that last time, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Their eyes were opened all right, that was true enough. But what they saw was not good and evil as God knows them, but what they saw was the evil that now lay within their own heart. Before, they had only heard of evil from a distance, so to speak, as a possibility they had been warned against. They had only truly known in an intimate way goodness and innocence, but now they certainly also knew of evil by experience, a bitter and regretful experience. That's totally different than God. God understands evil from afar as something outside of himself, but Adam and Eve understood it up close and personal. From the inside out, because they had become evil. They were naked and they were ashamed. Now, on the face of it, this is a strange result. The Lord had clearly warned Adam that eating of the tree would result in death, but all we read here is that it resulted in an awareness of their nakedness. How does that fit together? Is being naked the same as death? Is being naked of itself sinful? We know that's not true, because before they sinned, Adam and Eve were naked, and there was no death, no ill effect. The difference now is that Adam and Eve are ashamed of their nakedness. And shame, brothers and sisters, is the result of spiritual death. Just as the Lord had warned, something died inside of Adam and Eve the moment they broke covenant with God. For what is shame? Shame is a sense of self-loathing to be acutely aware that you have defied a certain standard and to hate yourself for that. When you sin, you later regret it. You are ashamed of your action, wish you had never done it, and even hate yourself for doing it. That shame. (laughs) It's triggered by guilt, by the awareness that you have done wrong, even though you knew better and though you could have and should have acted differently. Shame is brought on by guilt, and guilt is brought on by breaking faith with God, by walking away from his commandments and going your own way. And that, beloved, is the essence, the core of death. The stopping of the heart that beats in our chest and the cessation of our breath is one thing, and it's terrible. But the stopping of communion with the Lord, the cutting off from the Spirit of God, that is much, much worse. And the moment Adam and Eve broke covenant with God is the moment they truly died inside. That communion was severed. That harmony between man and his God was instantly gone. The immediate result was an overpowering sense of shame, which later on turned into fear, angst, pain, hardship, and eventually physical death as well. But spiritual death had taken hold of Adam and Eve immediately. From a life of true communion with the Lord in his covenant of love, they entered into an enslavement under Satan in his covenant of hate. Mankind became totally depraved. All his being, all his thinking, all his nature became infected with evil. That is evident first from their sense of shame. They were no longer comfortable in their own skin. Their original holiness and righteousness had been shattered so that they no longer understood much less wanted to do what was right. That comes out in their next action, still verse 7. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. We might think, well, what's the big deal? They assemble some makeshift clothes and cover themselves up. Wouldn't we have done the same thing? No doubt we would have, but then we too would have made the same mistake they did. They dealt with the effects of their sin and not the sin itself. Their major concern at that moment was not that they had just broken covenant with God, not that they had offended His Majesty, not that they had lost the most precious thing in life, but what had their attention was their overwhelming sense of shame and how to make themselves feel better. They don't even think at all about God right away. Their first action is not to fall on their knees and cry out for mercy, but it is to cover up their sin. And cover up their shame. They don't think at all about how they have broken God's commandment, but they're worried sick about their own feelings, and they deal with that first. And that's a pattern in our human nature that hasn't really changed, has it? So often when we sin, our first thought goes to the consequences. If we lie to someone, then we worry that they will discover that lie and be angry with us. How often are we first smitten with guilt before the Lord that we have broken his commandment. We busy ourselves trying to cover up the lie, to do damage control, to see to it that it never gets discovered. We sow our own fig leaves together, don't we? If we speak ill about someone and defame their name, if we tear down their reputation, do we not try to justify ourselves by claiming that it's all true? Do we not try to appease our own conscience and cover up our own shame, by insisting that all we have said is true? We've become experts at covering up our shame, but brothers and sisters, it amounts to nothing more than a pathetic apron of fig leaves that cannot hide our guilt and shame before the Lord God. He sees right through our thin and ill-fitting disguises. Man tries in vain to hide his shame, but his depravity comes out still more vividly in what happens next. Now in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. Man, who was made in the image of God, man, who was appointed king over all creation to rule it for God's glory, now runs away from God and hides from him. And why does he hide? Adam explains in verse 10, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Adam and Eve were afraid of God. They had tried to hide their shame, and for a moment they felt the fig leaves were doing the job, but the second God approaches them, they run for cover. Leaves won't do it anymore. They run for the trees, the biggest cover they can find, for now they are deathly scared of God. It's a horrendous development. Man who was the object of God's love And who loved God in return, now has nothing but dread of God in his heart. Man's nature has turned from white to black. And man is still running away from God, still trying to hide, isn't he? Don't we do that ourselves when we fall into sin? We build for ourselves a thin covering for our shame, and then we simply keep away from God. We don't go to where he is. Have you ever noticed How you stop praying when you fall into sin? When for a time you do not repent, but rather hang on to your sin, how is your prayer life? Perhaps you keep up a show in public or in your family for the sake of appearances, but there in private, on your knees, do you go to the Lord in sincerity of heart? Do you speak with him about the sin in your life? When we revel in our sin, our prayer life shuts down, and we keep away from heaven's throne room. We might even keep away from church, too, because in the assembly of God's people, we come too close to the Lord, and our consciences can't handle that. Watch out, brothers and sisters, that you're not on the run from the Lord. Do you think he won't find you? In a moment of time, man passed from a state of excellence to a state of evil, from harmony to horror, from paradise to brokenness. There is no good left in man. Adam and Eve can't stand to be in God's presence, and they also show hatred for each other. Did you notice the blame shifting going on? When the Lord starts asking questions, Adam points away from himself with two fingers. Verse 12 The woman you put here with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. You see that? At the very end, he is forced to admit that, yes, he did eat from the tree, but who does he blame? Does Adam take responsibility? No, he blames his wife, the woman. She gave me fruit. Does that sound familiar, brothers and sisters? But Adam's depravity goes even deeper, for he blames not only his wife, but he dares to blame the Lord himself, the woman you put here with me. Do you see the audacity of sin? The brazenness of our fallen human nature? Not only does Adam point the finger at another human being, but he brashly blames God for his own sin. Brothers and sisters, we have here a picture of an unrepentant, ice-cold, self-righteous heart. And we can all relate, can't we? The woman is no better than the man, for she will shortly do the same thing in blaming the snake. But does anyone fall on his knees and take the blame? We all by nature know exactly how to pass the buck, don't we? Sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that admitting our sin is the same as repentance, but the two are not identical. Adam and Eve both admitted their sin, but they found the fault in someone else. There was no change in their heart, no turn in the direction of their life. How different was the response of Job later on? Job, who had less privileges than Adam and Eve in paradise did, who suffered a tremendous amount more than they did, but did not break covenant like Adam and Eve did. Nevertheless, when he is approached by the Lord to give account of his actions, gives this truly meek reply, Job 40, verse 4. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. And when the Lord goes on to remind Job of God's righteousness and inscrutable wisdom, then Job humbles himself still further. Chapter 42, verse 3. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That, brothers and sisters, is repentance. All fingers are withdrawn from others. We don't point to our wife or husband. We don't point to our friends. We don't point to the office bearers or anyone else, but we say to the Lord, I have done wrong and I am fully to blame. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And if you can't say that, then understand, beloved, that you have not repented and you are still living in broken covenant with God. Man's situation is dark and dreary. There is no good left in man, nothing which desires to please God, nothing which can please God. Man doesn't even want to go to God, but runs away in fear. Our total depravity can only be overcome by God's total grace. And we see this total grace, for look at how the Lord responds to man. Spiritual death had set in already, and man shows his ugly nature. The Lord had threatened death as punishment for their sin. All Adam and Eve could expect was instant and complete death. It would have been perfectly righteous of God if he had sent fire down from heaven to destroy Adam and Eve and burn up the earth. No one would have been surprised had the Lord come with his wrath into the Garden of Eden. Why do you think Adam and Eve were so afraid? They knew their guilt, they knew the punishment, and they knew God does not lie or go back on his word. So death and destruction must await them. But we don't read about fire and we don't read about consuming wrath. Instead, we are surprised to read that the Lord comes walking into the garden just like he always used to. And even when Adam and Eve hide, then the Lord does not lash out in anger as expected. But verse 9, The Lord God called to the man, Where are you? The first word is not a word of judgment, but a word of grace. Adam, my son, where are you? For we must understand that the Lord said these words not for his benefit, but for Adam's. The Lord was not on a quest for information. He knew exactly which tree Adam was hiding behind. Nothing is hidden from God, but now God in his mercy reaches out to Adam. Though Adam and Eve had rebelled and broken covenant, though they had separated themselves from his love, though they wanted to be wiser than God, Though they had hated the Lord and loved Satan, and even now were cowering in the bushes in dread of their Creator, even still the Lord calls out to them, Where are you? Come out from there. Come into my presence. I want to speak with you. Isn't that amazing, brothers and sisters? Man wants nothing to do with God and has thrown himself into the clutches of death. But God still comes looking for man. And brings him back into the reaches of life. Come, talk to me, Adam. That's how the Lord works. Through grace that is abounding, through grace that blows your mind away. Though we hate him by nature, he still comes to you and me and still calls after us. If it were up to us, we'd be out there with the world, gnashing our teeth at God from the bushes. But because of his mighty grace, we are gathered here today as his children. You belong here for one reason only, God's grace in your life. If you had nothing else in life to thank the Lord for, and we each have countless blessings, this one fact would be enough. You have peace with God by grace alone. And that grace is made still more clear in verse 15, where the Lord curses the serpent. The Lord does not excuse man for his sin. We'll see their punishment more another time, the Lord willing. But through the process of his questioning, God traces the origin of sin to the rightful party, the serpent. Again, it's worth pointing out that these questions asked by the Lord are not a fact-finding mission for God's own knowledge, so that he can figure out exactly what took place. The Lord knows how it all went down. Instead, he wants to make it clear to Adam and Eve how things came about. Remember that at this moment they were still in league with Satan who had possessed the serpent. They had made a covenant with the devil, and so they were on friendly terms with the serpent. In order for the Lord to break up that devilish covenant and restore man to the covenant of love with himself, he had to make it perfectly plain to them that it is the serpent who is their true enemy. Moments before they had believed the lie of Satan. They had trusted him. But now God wants them to see that the serpent had led them down the wrong path, that he had deceived them, that he is the enemy who lies at the source of their shame, their misery, and their fear. Adam and Eve must see that clearly, for the only way back into God's covenant is to break covenant with Satan. And that's why the enmity is such a gift of grace. That sounds strange at first, for enmity means that one is against the other, Enmity means strife. It is to be at loggerheads with someone else, to be constantly in friction with, and even outrightly hostile towards another. How can that be a blessing? But look at verse 15. In verse 14, the serpent as an animal is cursed by being put into a position of utter humiliation. Then in verse 15, the Lord addresses the evil spirit who had used the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, the Lord says. I will do that. By nature, it is not there. By nature, we humans gravitate towards sin and the devil's ways. But God says, I'm going to put a stop to that. Satan had caused enmity to sprout between man and God, but immediately God turns the tables and puts enmity between his people and Satan. Is that not an undeserved blessing and total grace? He keeps us away from the camp of the evil one. And yet sometimes we forget or ignore this gift, don't we? It can become tiring to always feel different from the world, to always be set apart a little bit, to always be regarded as outside the mainstream. Do you ever feel sick of that? When we start feeling that way, then we edge over a little closer to the offspring of the serpent that is, the unbelieving world, who are still in covenant with Satan and not with God. We start to copy the world. We participate in their forms of entertainment. We adopt their way of life by indulging in materialism or luxury or idle pursuits for our own pleasure. We become close friends with unbelievers and may even start dating them. Brothers and sisters, are you aware that the Lord put enmity between us and them? It's not the church who did this, and it certainly isn't there naturally. It's God's gift of grace. Are you thankful for that? Do you make every effort to maintain that enmity in your life as well? Now don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting in any way that we are no longer to interact with unbelievers. Not at all, for we need to let our light shine before men. But that light cannot shine when we become like them when our light is dimmed further and further, and we become as dark as the world. Spreading the gospel in word and deed to those outside is good and necessary, but that never means joining them in their way of life. It is just as James writes in chapter four, verse four. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Evangelism and romance don't mix. Partnering with unbelievers makes a mockery of that enmity. Are you mindful of that enmity and are you thankful for it? Do you know what it does? It keeps us from slipping back into league with Satan, back into his demonic covenant. We've been there once. Let's never go back. And we can't afford to be there. For the devil and his offspring will be crushed in the Lord's total victory. That victory is signaled already in verse 14, where the serpent is cursed directly. Notice that Adam and Eve themselves are not cursed directly, but the instigator of their rebellion is. To be cursed is to be cut off from God and marked for eternal destruction. And as a sign of that, the serpent will crawl on his belly and will eat dust all the days of his life. Now some people get sidetracked with the question of whether or not the serpent had little legs and feet before this, like a giant millipede or something. I'm not going to get into that issue because it serves little purpose and is really unanswerable. The Bible doesn't tell us. The point is not whether the serpent crawls for the first time, but that his crawling takes on new significance. It becomes now a sign that he is under God's curse. It is a symbol of his humiliation. Later in the Bible, we read how God's enemies will lick the dust at the feet of his people. We might say today, another one bites the dust. Slithering in the dust points to the utter defeat of the evil serpent, Satan himself. And then the Lord brings that out most pointedly in verse 15b. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. It's a picture of conflict. The godly line of the woman... Versus the ungodly followers of Satan. They will be in constant enmity, struggle, and battle. Brothers and sisters, let's understand that the life of a believer is not a bed of roses. We can expect to be snake bit from time to time. You know what happens when a poisonous snake bites. It's instantly painful and potentially fatal. You have to be rushed to hospital. The devil is in this fight to win and the poison dripping from his fangs is indeed lethal. We can expect suffering and pain. We can expect a backlash, even a violent backlash from the unbelieving world when we show ourselves to be followers of the Lord. The Lord Jesus himself experienced this. Though he was the offspring of the woman in perfection, and though he died for the sins of man, the offspring of the devil hated him. He did them no wrong, but they couldn't stand him. And the serpent himself came and nipped at Christ's feet in the, in the desert of temptation. He struck awfully close through the hand of hostile crowds that twice wanted to put him to death. He finally sank his fangs into him through the betrayal of Judas and ultimately sent his poison to Christ's heart in his execution on the cross. The life of the covenant child is no different than that of the covenant mediator. The enmity is there as a blessing, but sometimes we experience the pain and suffering of a snake bite. And yet it is only temporary. The snake's bite is never fatal, for even though Satan latched his fangs onto the Lord Jesus, at that very moment, despite all outer appearances, the Lord crushed Satan's head. Satan did his best to ruin the Christ, but because Christ kept covenant with his Father in heaven perfectly, Satan had no power over him. Because the last Adam never believed the lie of the serpent and never entered into covenant with him, the death he died could never be permanent. He rose from the grave, overpowering Satan, overcoming the power of sin, removing the sting of death, and sealing the victory for God's people once and for all. The serpent's head has been crushed, and that means that every snake bite we get in the heel Every ounce of suffering we endure now as offspring of the woman, as followers of Jesus, the effects of every drop of poison will be reversed. The antidote has been given us in the blood of Christ. Its healing can be felt already today, and full restoration is assured on the day Christ Jesus returns. That's God's grace, pure, simple, and overpowering. In Christ, he renewed the covenant we broke. Will we then befriend the treacherous serpent? Let's be what we are in Jesus, friends of God. Amen.